Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan, here to talk to you today about everything you expect on this channel, and that is, of course, the National Football League. Now, before my European friends get too excited, that is, of course, American football and not European football. And before they click off this video, I do want to point out that we're not going to be talking about the teams or the players or the rules or the fandoms or the sports themselves in this particular video. Instead, we're going to be talking about disciplinary processes and how large organizations can use definitions and contracts to get around what it appears they say on the page and how a players association, the union that is organized against this particular we're going to call them an employer. It's not quite that simple in a sporting league, but for purposes of simplicity, an employer of this type and potentially get the raw end of the deal in the contract that they have negotiated. Now, I do have to say we are going to be talking about an individual set of allegations against an individual by the name of Deshaun Watson, the quarterback of the Houston Texans that was, after some significant happenings in this particular case, traded to the Cleveland Browns, signed a new contract. And we're going to have to talk with at least some level of specificity about what's happening there. I'm going to try to keep it PG, PG-13, but what is alleged here is honestly pretty bad, even when we're going to be talking about the fact that the contract maybe doesn't rise to the level that some people would like to see it rise to with what discipline he should or can be facing. We'll talk about that all. It'll make more sense as we go through the details. For now, let's talk a little bit about background. So we're going to be talking about Deshaun Watson, and he was sued civilly for damages, for money, by a couple of massage therapists at the top of 2021. Here's the ESPN article from March of 2021. It says two lawsuits have been filed. They allege that Watson committed civil assault when touching a massage therapist with, we'll call it his bathing suit area, and that he intentionally or knowingly caused physical contact with plaintiff when Watson knew or should have reasonably known that plaintiff would regard such contact as offensive. He is alleged in these two lawsuits that started everything off to expose himself in a massage setting and touch either himself or the massage therapists in a way that nobody would really want in that setting itself. Now, those are allegations. Those are lawsuits, but they quickly grew in number. So there's two right now. That would grow to 24. Now, out of those 24 lawsuits, a number of them would be settled, 20, in fact, this summer. And before that, criminal charges would come into play, as you might imagine, with something alleged like this, where the state of Texas got involved. And that created an interesting conundrum for the Houston Texans, the NFL, and Deshaun Watson himself. Because when you go before what is used in Texas, which is called a grand jury, you might have heard the phrase that uh, a proper attorney general or district attorney can get an indictment from a grand jury against a ham sandwich. And, and why is that? That's because the standards at issue here are very, very low. If you've been following trials either on this channel or other channels, you're probably familiar with beyond a reasonable doubt. That's what's used for criminal cases or even the preponderance of evidence standard that is used for civil cases. Well, there is a standard below that and we call it probable cause. A grand jury must find probable cause for an indictment to go forward in Texas whereas a trial jury must find a defendant is guilty beyond all reasonable doubt, which is a considerably higher standard of proof. In Texas, at least nine out of the 12 jurors on a grand jury must agree on that indictment. And probable cause, as promised, is basically the lowest standard we have. We've got a website definition here from Cornell. This actually relates to arrests, but it's the same kind of concept. It implies a need to prove a reasonable basis for believing that a crime may have been committed, in this case, by the individual that is brought before you, 
to indict. So a grand jury has 12 people. Nine of them have to agree that there is a reason to believe that a crime of the nature asserted by that district attorney or attorney general, whoever is actually presenting the case to the grand jury, might have been committed by this individual. Just a reasoned belief, the lowest standard possible, not even preponderance of evidence standard. And in this particular case, all of the grand juries that were asked this question regarding Deshaun Watson returned what are called no bills, right? A grand jury declined to indict Deshaun Watson on Thursday after considering evidence in a criminal complaint against the Browns quarterback alleging sexual misconduct during massage therapy session. This marks the second grand jury to decline to indict Watson this month. On March 11th, the Harris County, Texas grand jury determined there was not enough evidence to charge Watson with a crime following these allegations either. And that was actually with respect to a number of these particular massage therapists. So that is something to take note of. This is the lowest standard of proof. And these grand juries continue to return no bills. Now, you could argue that the system is corrupt. You can argue that people are too much fans of NFL quarterbacks and the grand juries were otherwise compromised by this. You can argue any of those things. But as we are sitting here evaluating that happening, the NFL is also evaluating what its move can be because the NFL is interested in preserving its goodwill, its brand name, what Roger Goodell generally calls defending the shield. You can see here the logo is a shield. And so every year, I believe it might be every other year, they put forth a personal conduct policy that says you guys can get in big trouble if you violate this particular policy. They say everyone in bold and underlined who is a part of the league, which is ostensibly supposed to include owners and that side of the thing, as well as players, must refrain from quote-unquote conduct detrimental to the integrity and public confidence in the NFL. We all have an obligation to keep our intellectual property strong, says the personal conduct policy. And what does that mean? It means, well, if you get convicted of a crime, yeah, we're going to have an issue with you. But this policy from 2018 says, even if the conduct does not result in a criminal conviction, players found to have engaged in any of the following conduct will be subject to discipline. And this includes, among a number of other things, S.A., conduct that poses a genuine danger to the safety and well-being of another person and conduct that undermines or puts at risk the integrity of the NFL, NFL clubs, or NFL personnel. So off of this list, which importantly doesn't include any definitions of anything in here, if the league finds you to have violated these particular issues, then they can discipline you. And the rest of the pages here talk about that discipline process, some of which was otherwise superseded by a collectively bargained agreement between the players in the league and the league itself in 2020. And that resulted in this particular section, Article 46 of the NFL Collective Bargaining Agreement, which says the following, all disputes involving a fine or suspension imposed upon a player for conduct on the playing field or involving action taken against a player by the commissioner for conduct detrimental to the integrity of or public confidence in the game of professional football will be processed as follows. The commissioner will promptly send written notice of his action to the player with a copy to the NFLPA. Within three business days following such written notification, the player affected thereby or the NFLPA with the player's approval may appeal in writing to the commissioner. Fines or suspensions imposed upon players for violating the league's personal conduct policy, which we just took a look at. Although the version that's going to be at issue here is called the 2021 version. We don't appear to have access to that online. Everything seems to line up. It's doubtful that there were significant or material changes in that document, but I want to note that for you because it is at least a couple of years out of date what we just looked at, as well as whether a violation of the personal conduct policy has been proven by the NFL will be initially determined by what they call a disciplinary officer jointly selected and appointed by the parties. 
This is important. This portion of the CBA, the collective bargaining agreement, was renegotiated in 2020 because the NFL had a certain amount of bad press and bad blood from the players that actually play their game for the unilateral authority imposed upon them by the commissioner of the league. And this had resulted in a number of fractious negotiations and interaction between these players. You might remember Tom Brady, the quarterback of the Patriots, now the Buccaneers, who got in trouble for quote-unquote deflate gate, which let's just say has some scientific flaws in the league's methodology, but that didn't matter even going up to a court process because of that unilateral authority that was held by the commissioner in this particular circumstance. So the players were upset and the players negotiated for what they felt would be a better solution here. So we've got this disciplinary officer. Unless the parties mutually determine otherwise, that disciplinary officer shall serve a minimum two-year term. And thereafter, the disciplinary officer may be discharged by either party at any time upon 120 written days written notice. And then there's a whole process for that. The disciplinary officer will be responsible for conducting evidentiary hearings, issuing binding findings of fact, and determining the discipline that should be imposed, if any, in accordance with the personal conduct policy. The NFL will have the burden of establishing that the player violated the personal conduct policy. Now, that is important. In the CBA here, that sounds like a difficult thing to do, right? The burden is placed on the NFL, and so the NFL has to cross some arbitrary threshold of provability uh, that Deshaun Watson had already survived at the grand jury level, at the lowest threshold uh, of required evidentiary burden. So that should be interesting here. But as we read this document, we'll find out why it isn't. The NFL also will publish mitigating factors for discipline, which will include acceptance of responsibility and cooperation, engagement with clinical resources, and voluntary restitution. They will list for the disciplinary officer's consideration what items on, in this case, Deshaun Watson's resume suggest that maybe we should be a little bit lenient about the punishment. The disciplinary officer's disciplinary determination will be final and binding, subject only to... We'll get to it. We'll get to it. So the premise of the way this is written, which is a contract between two parties, which, if you're at all familiar with contract law, is supposed to be a meeting of the minds engaged with on a good faith basis between both parties, is that there is now some kind of independent arbitrator, this disciplinary officer that will actually go collect the evidence, make a determination, and then decide on what should happen to a player. And that this is providing protection for the players in the NFLPA because it's no longer Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the league, sitting on a throne and just issuing edicts from on high as to what should happen. Well, as you can tell from both the thumbnail here as well as the tone of my voice, that's not what has occurred here. So... The NFL proceeds with one of these disciplinary hearings. They want to punish Deshaun Watson. It's rumored, it's leaked out that they actually want an indefinite suspension that Deshaun Watson wouldn't know when he is coming back until the NFL was good and satisfied. Rumors also leak that he's willing to offer about six games as a suspension, which we will see matches up with some of the precedent that the NFL had actually used against violent offenders uh, in similar scenarios, which is something that the judge or the ex-judge, the retired judge, is going to take into account here as disciplinary officer. That's where we lead into this particular discussion. And then a few days ago, the NFLPA, representing Deshaun Watson in these actions, says basically in a statement, hey, 
we have gone through this process. This is what we agreed to. This is how we are supposed to be protecting each other, both the brand of the NFL and the players' well-being, safety, and fairness. We agree not to appeal whatever might come down the pipe, and we call on the NFL to do the same. Now, the NFL, of course, doesn't do that, notably. And when you see a statement like this before a decision is released, chances are you're getting an inkling that what is about to be released has been leaked out a little bit. And the NFLPA and Deshaun Watson are pretty happy with it, and the NFL probably isn't. So let's actually talk about that decision because there's a lot of interesting stuff in here. And again, I want to give that disclaimer, that sensitivity warning. We're going to have some specifics here. And I don't want to be seen, nor do I personally, defend Deshaun Watson here. A lot of what is going to be described, I would say, as a legal term of art, is at minimum gross. Um, But from a legal perspective and these contracts and what's happening, I do have questions as to what this process actually entailed and whether or not the NFLPA actually did have a meeting of the minds when they agreed to Article 46 in that collective bargaining agreement. So the CBA between the National Football League and the National Football League Players Association authorizes the commissioner of the NFL to discipline players for conduct detrimental to the integrity of or public confidence in the game of professional football, American football, American football. Pursuant to this authority, the NFL has issued a personal conduct policy, which is meant to define, address, and sanction conduct found to be detrimental to the league and professional football. You see it's referenced here as the CBA from 2020 and the personnel policy from 2021, which just doesn't appear to be available online, though I have no reason to believe it is materially different from what we just looked at in 2018. The policy is unilaterally imposed by the NFL and is intended to provide guidance on the NFL's expectations and standards of conduct. So the NFL writes this thing. It's separate from the CBA. The CBA references it, so it is given power in that article, but the NFL writes this thing, and notably, as we discussed, doesn't include definitions for any of these terms, including what's referenced here. Two, we've got the SA. We go on a little bit further. We see genuine danger to the safety. We see conduct that undermines or puts at risk the integrity of the NFL. None of these examples, says the arbitrator here, of prohibited conduct is explained or defined by the NFL in the policy or the CBA. For those involving crimes defined by state or federal law, of course, there is no need to. For the remainder, the NFL is left to provide its own definition of the conduct. Now, I'm not so sure, policy-wise, editorializing, that this should be the way these things are read, right? One of the rubrics of reading contracts is that they can generally be read against the drafter because the drafter has the pen, the drafter can decide these things. And again, if we're talking about a collectively bargained situation, it should be the case that the NFL and the NFLPA know what they're agreeing to when they enter into an agreement on something like Article 46. So if the NFL can just write a document like this, put a list together, not define anything, and then they're going to get the benefit of the doubt, the NFL is left to provide its own definition effectively after the fact, which is what we will see here, that presents a major fairness issue for the lawyer in me, right? You don't have to like this guy. I don't particularly like this guy based on everything that is described here, but we do have to have a certain modicum of understanding that these parties need to agree on whatever it is that they agreed to, and they need to understand what it is that they agreed to in order to affect that agreement. And I don't think that is actually present where you can just have a list of things, the definitions aren't included, and then one side or the other can just decide on what the definition is after the fact. 
Starting in 2020, the initial determination of whether a player in the NFL has violated the policy and if so, what discipline should be imposed is to be made by a disciplinary officer jointly selected and appointed by the parties. That is the NFL and the NFLPA. The disciplinary officer's determination of whether a violation of the policy has occurred is final and binding. The disciplinary determination is subject to the right of either party to appeal to the commissioner. Now, that sounded like a lot of words there, but effectively, this particular role can decide that there was no violation at all. And if they find that there was no violation at all, then that is final and binding. And the commissioner can't swoop in and otherwise find a violation after this person didn't. Now, that sounds like a concession. That sounds like something that was given to the NFLPA. But because of what we just talked about with definitions, we'll find that it is illusory. It is what we call a water sandwich. You can't grab onto it. It has no meat on its bones. It is not disputed by the parties here that it is the NFL's burden to establish by a preponderance of the evidence. So 50% plus one, not just the probable cause that we saw the grand jury reject in these cases, that a player engaged in the alleged prohibited conduct and that the NFL must rely on credible evidence found in the record in order to carry its burden of proof. The record. It is important to note at the outset that serving as the jointly appointed disciplinary officer, my decision is limited by the record presented to me. I'm not separately investigating this thing. Despite what you might have seen on, on Law and Order or other legal shows, we don't go out and ace attorney this thing and inquire about witness statements ourselves. The record was compiled in connection with the NFL's allegations that Deshaun Watson, a player in the NFL, violated three provisions of the policy by engaging in SA, conduct that poses a genuine danger to the safety and well-being of another person, and conduct that undermines or puts at risk the integrity of the NFL. You see why I highlighted those in the personal conduct policy. The NFL's investigation was conducted by two former prosecutors with decades of experience investigating SA cases. Although Mr. Watson allegedly worked with more than 60 therapists during the 15-month period beginning in the fall of 2019 through the winter of 2021, the NFL only investigated the claims of 24, those 24 suing Mr. Watson. Of those 24 complainants, the NFL investigators were only able to interview 12, so about half. Of those 12, the NFL relied for its conclusions on the testimony of four, as well as interviews of some 37 other third parties and substantial documentary evidence. In footnote 11, the judge here then continues, it should be noted that the NFL relied on a fifth accuser who gave an interview to a magazine, but who declined to be interviewed by the investigators. I excluded such testimony from the disciplinary record, but acknowledge that there is documentary evidence associated with her testimony, which is consistent with the NFL's findings. Since she didn't talk to the investigators, this individuals saying, hey, I didn't take it into account, but also here's footnote 11, I did take it into account at least subconsciously. The resulting 215-page investigative report, along with the testimony of its two investigators, comprised the NFL's case. My credibility determinations are based largely on the credibility of those NFL investigators, and the parties have also submitted post-hearing briefings. During the critical time period, Mr. Watson had a contract with the Houston Texans, which team had an array of resources to treat injuries, including a licensed massage therapy business in the Houston area. So he could have gone there. Despite having access to team-provided and approved massage therapists, Mr. Watson sought out private massages and, according to the NFL, used his status as an NFL player as a pretext to engage in a premeditated pattern of predatory behavior towards multiple women. Now, we're going to get into those details that I promised. So if you want to click off, that's absolutely fine. I will try to put in a timestamp for when we get done with this part. The pattern of conduct described by the NFL includes the following steps. Mr. Watson identifies himself from the outset of each encounter as a quarterback for the NFL via an Instagram inquiry for a massage. Mr. Watson's requests were typically urgent, waiting to schedule a massage that day. 
He was not looking for a professional setting and often inquired as to whether the massage would be quote unquote private. Mr. Watson admitted that he was not concerned whether the women were experienced massage therapists or even licensed. Of the four massage therapists who are the subject of the report, only three were licensed in operating their own businesses. The fourth therapist was working towards her licensure. So part of the fact pattern here is he doesn't care whether you're an actual licensed therapist, which you would assume a professional athlete looking for professional services would be concerned about that fact, at least at bare minimum, on the premise that an unlicensed massage therapist could otherwise impact your physical well-being. And since you make your money throwing a football, you wouldn't want to play games with that. That said, this isn't the strongest piece of evidence here because as it turns out, three out of four were licensed and the other one was in the process of being licensed. Mr. Watson would follow his Instagram contact with texts or calls before each session to make sure that the therapists were comfortable massaging certain areas of his body, particularly his lower back, glutes, abs, and groin. Mr. Watson requested that the therapists use a towel to cover his private parts rather than the more typically used sheet. Mr. Watson often provided his own towels, which have been variously described as medium to small or Gatorade towels. Once in the massage sessions, each of the therapists alleged that Mr. Watson engaged in what the NFL has characterized as quote-unquote sexualized behavior. This behavior includes Mr. Watson's insistence that the therapist work on his focus points with just a towel as cover. When he turned over on his back, it is alleged that Mr. Watson exposed his erect penis and purposefully contacted the therapist's hands and arms multiple times with that appendage. One of the therapists alleges that Mr. Watson not only contacted her arm multiple times, uh, but that he then ejaculated on that arm. There was no allegation that Mr. Watson exerted any force against any of the therapists. And this is a kind of important piece of the puzzle. And I think we're mostly done with the details there. And certainly even as described, at bare minimum, it's gross, right? At bare minimum, this is bad behavior. Uh, he's going out there. He's contacting what is believed to be 60 different therapists through Instagram. I don't care if you're licensed come by, I'll cover myself in a towel, and then what happens, happens, is not a good look for him, is not a good look for the NFL. Again, at minimum, my findings. The NFL alleges that Deshaun Watson violated three provisions of the policy by engaging in SA, genuine danger, and undermining the integrity of the NFL. We start with SA, and, and this is one of those areas where we can see the definitions in practice. As noted above, the conduct of SA is not defined in the CBA, the policy, or the report. On behalf of the NFL, one of its investigators defined the term at the evidentiary hearing as the quote-unquote unwanted sexual contact with another person. The NFL contends that Mr. Watson committed SA by allegedly touching his penis to the woman without their consent, as it is the NFL's prerogative to impose the policy on its players I am bound to accept the NFL's definition of SA. Therefore, it is the NFL's burden to prove that it is more likely true than not that Mr. Watson intended to cause contact with his penis. He did so for a sexual purpose, and he knew that such contact was unwanted. Now, let's take a step back here, because this is why there is that water sandwich. And I'm not defending Deshaun Watson. As I said, this all sounds horrible. This is not what I would want to root for as a fan of an NFL team, which is what the NFL is ultimately concerned about when you look at these things, but that doesn't mean we don't have to take the contract into account. So Article 46 says, hey, we have to prove that something happened under our personnel policy. Sounds pretty good. 
But here, when posed with the question, this disciplinary officer ostensibly designed, put into place to make a determination about whether the NFL proved its case, says that she is bound to take the NFL's definition of what that phrase is in the personnel policy. Now, I'm not sure that is the right standard for an evaluation of this type. Because again, if we don't agree on the definitions, if we don't agree on what we agreed upon, then there isn't actually contract. There isn't a meeting of the minds. And I think you could have concerns about whether or not these things happen. Taking to the reductio ad absurdum, just hyperbolizing as a thought experiment. And we imagine that uh, SA is actually defined by the NFL to mean spinning a pizza crust above our heads. Then under the rubric given by this particular arbitrator, we would have to evaluate whether someone spun a pizza crust above their heads. And I don't think that can be right. Instead, it seems more likely to me that if we have to interpret phrases that the drafter of a policy didn't bother to define, one, we should probably hold their feet to the fire a little bit more as to what we should assume their phrases meant since they had the pen and they didn't bother to give us other definitions. And in a case like this one, we should probably apply standards that are otherwise going to be used in the community of the individual in question, right? So Deshaun Watson works for the Texans. He's operating in Texas. And we can go look at definitions of SA in Texas. And we can look at these, again, with some more details that are comfortable for any of us and see that for the most part, we're talking about penetrative acts in Texas. Penetrative without consent. And without consent means specifically to use physical force, violence, or coercion. Now, you might have a case with respect to coercion. We don't apparently have a penetrative act. So that becomes problematic in and of itself to get to what is the standard definition in Texas. But other jurisdictions can have other definitions. And we don't know where all of these took place. The issue is what's being described here is referenced otherwise in the laws in Texas and, and otherwise where we see that it has a lesser kind of offense. Indecent exposure seems to be the best kind of equivalent here and or uh, sexual touching or something along those lines. And that's not good enough, presumably for the NFL. One, because it doesn't appear in the language of their policy directly, even though it can clearly still be conduct detrimental. But also because under the law, you're looking at something like a misdemeanor. Now, again, I'm not saying that a private party has to be bound by the law, but when we are evaluating definitions, they should be bound by something. Now, you might say to yourself in response to that, sure, Rick, but you self-admitted to this guy being gross and that something should probably happen to him. And I wouldn't say that you were wrong, but that's the gut feeling, right? That is, okay, this is a bad person. We should make sure that we can wield our weapons against him, no matter the hell or high water that might ensue. And I've always cautioned against that in this space and in others. This is that man for all seasons problem. If this is a bad person, well, you can do all manner of things to rules and laws and other rubrics that otherwise keep us safe and keep things fair because what you're looking at is what you have self-identified as a bad person. I get that instinct. I am sympathetic to it. But I do look at this and say, I'm just not so sure that one should be bound in this respect to what the party says after the fact is the definition of the term that they want to impose. And we will see from this very judge that there is an issue for her. It comes out in the discipline that she chooses to impose and what she describes as after the fact rulemaking or definition making. The record presented by the NFL to support its allegations of SA includes many undisputed facts. 
For instance, there is no dispute that Mr. Watson used Instagram to contact these therapists, that he identified himself as a player for the NFL. There's no dispute that he reached out for these sessions with women whose professional qualifications were unknown to him and they weren't explored by him. He always said the same area that he wanted to have massage. And in all four cases here, the therapists were willing to go forward. However, none of the therapists were willing to offer him massage services again. Finally, there's no dispute that he preferred a towel and there should be no dispute that a medium or small size towel will more likely slip off a body than a sheet. Importantly, they do note, much of the alleged conduct is not in and of itself challenged as wrongful. There is evidence in the record that Mr. Watson's focus points are legitimate focus areas for professional athletes. Moreover, it is not unusual for therapists to inadvertently contact a male client's bathing suit area while treating these legitimate focus areas. Mr. Watson has not testified that he had erections and inadvertently touched the therapist here. Instead, he has categorically denied the allegations against him, including that he ever developed an erection during massage. It is difficult to give weight to a complete denial when weighed against the credible testimony of the investigators who interviewed the therapists and other third parties, including in this footnote that the therapist's accounts are substantially corroborated by such evidence as contemporaneous text messages and discussions with third parties after their interactions with Mr. Watson. So this gets footnoted. This is kind of going between the lines. But one of the things that the disciplinary officer here found was that Mr. Watson was so adamant about his version of the world. No, not only did I not do any of this, I never even had some of the accidental happenings that happen at a massage therapy session and the accusations are completely unfounded. Uh, and that actually ruined his credibility for this particular arbitrator because he said, well, look, we got text messages, we got all this stuff and you're not even admitting to the accident of these kinds of things. That's a problem for me. Moreover, the totality of the evidence lends support to my conclusion that it is more probable than not, that's the standard, that Mr. Watson did have erections and that his erect penis contacted the therapists as claimed by them. So you have that touching that is the first prong of the NFL's case. Whether or not it's intentional, the matter of intent must be inferred from circumstantial evidence in the absence of an admission, a confession by Mr. Watson. In this case, she's going to find that there was intentionality because the, pro the professional qualifications were unimportant to him. He insisted on using a towel and he asked for areas of the body to be massaged that triggered erections. Since he engaged in that pattern of conduct multiple times, she's going to find that he had a sexual purpose with that intentionality. Finally, I found that the NFL has produced sufficient circumstantial evidence to prove the last prong of the test, that he knew this contact was unwanted. There is credible evidence that one of the therapists expressed her discomfort of the unwanted contact during the sessions and another of the therapists ended the session early. Therefore, I find that the NFL has carried its burden to prove by preponderance of the evidence that Mr. Watson engaged in a sexual assault as defined by the NFL. And that's important as a parenthetical. We just talked about the fact that if the NFL can define its phrases as whatever it likes, then it can use whatever it likes to show in the evidence what it just said was that violation of the personnel policy, which means that not only is what we're going to talk about with respect to the appeal all illusory and makes all of this nonsense to begin with, but this process in and of itself is effectively illusory and nonsense if they can just define the terms to mean whatever they like. Conduct that poses a genuine danger to the safety and well-being of another person. Once again, there is no definition provided in the policy or CBA for the prohibited conduct of posing a genuine danger to the safety and well-being of another person. Neither has the NFL provided a definition in connection with this matter. The evidence upon which the NFL relies for proof of this offense, however, is based squarely on the emotional responses of the four therapists to Mr. Watson's conduct. So they are saying that the personnel policy, this language includes emotional responses.
Further evidence identified by the NFL in support of this offense includes testimony from the four therapists. One of the therapists told the investigators that she sought counseling after her session. Another of the therapists reported that she was frustrated, upset, and embarrassed. A third testified that she changed her business practices and suffered from depression and sleeplessness. And the fourth remained uncertain whether she would continue to prefer, pursue a career in massage therapy. When comparing the above evidence against the other examples of violent conduct prohibited by the policy, it is apparent that the NFL has taken this occasion to broadly define the concepts of genuine danger, safety, and well-being in its charge. As I stated earlier, it is the NFL's policy and it can set the rules. And again, that may well be an employer is going to be different than a lawmaker is going to be different than a government, but there still has to be some notion of both parties agreeing to what was just said. And I'm not sure that that happens here. When you read this phraseology, genuine danger to the safety and well-being of another, for the most part, what you're thinking of is physical danger. And especially in a list in this personnel policy that is talking about physical dangers. I'm not saying that that phraseology can't be read the way the NFL is offering here. I am saying that it is possible that the players weren't on notice that that was intended by that phraseology. And again, we will see this particular disciplinary officer have a concern there as well. Based on the NFL's broad interpretation of this prohibited conduct as reflected in the evidence it chose to present, I find that the NFL has carried its burden to prove by preponderance of the evidence that Mr. Watson's conduct posed a genuine danger to the safety and well-being of another person. So the NFL proposes this, its investigators propose this, it broadly interprets its own words, and so thus, one thing you can read between the lines here is I am obligated to find that they proved their case here, which means that I think anybody would always win on the NFL side for all of this. Conduct that undermines or puts at risk the integrity of the NFL. The parties to the CBAs have agreed not to operate with a static or frozen definition of conduct detrimental, according to the NFL. And the NFL has invoked this detriment to the league language for such conduct as Tom Brady's deflation of the game balls used in the AFC Championship game in January 2015, probably throwing an alleged there, and the 2012 New Orleans Saints pay-for-performance scheme. Although the above examples were focused on the game of football itself, which is usually where conduct detrimental lives, it clearly is within the purview of the NFL to expand the scope of its supervision to a player's private life if he invokes his status as a player while engaging in that prohibited conduct. In this regard, the NFL has demonstrated that Mr. Watson identified himself as a player for the NFL to initiate contact with the therapist and used his ties to the Texans to reinforce his requests for massages. I find this evidence sufficient to demonstrate that Mr. Watson's conduct undermined the integrity of the NFL in the eyes of the therapists. Regardless of my findings, it is apparent that Mr. Watson acted with reckless disregard for the consequences of his actions by exposing himself and the NFL to such public scrutiny and speculation. Mr. Watson's predatory conduct cast a negative light on the league and its players, sufficient proof that he violated this provision of the policy. Here's some strong language from this judge. Now, you can tell she's got concerns about the breadth of the definitions that the NFL has offered in the prior sections, but she is more than willing to say that Mr. Watson was predatory. And that doesn't necessarily mean that his actions were illegal, but at bare minimum, again, legal term of art, they were gross, and she's happy to cast them in this particular light. But she's concerned, right? And she's concerned for the same reason that I'm concerned, for the same reason that I think most lawyers that would be looking at this are concerned, which is it seems unmoored at this point in time. If they can set the definitions and they can just tell you what their policy means and it can be unilaterally imposed, then what is collectively bargained? What was actually agreed to by these two parties other than tyranny of Roger Goodell sitting back on that throne that was trying to be avoided? So she's got a concern and she'll talk about it here, but she's going to get pilloried for this kind of talk across outlets 
uh, in the sporting world in America. Having found that the NFL carried its burden to prove by preponderance of the evidence that Mr. Watson violated the policy in various ways, according to the NFL, it is my responsibility to review any recommended discipline for consistency of treatment, uniformity of standards for parties similarly situated, and patent unfairness or selectivity. I am now charged with determining whether or not you've got a personal beef with Deshaun Watson, whether things are just lined up in a way that is completely untoward or unfair to this individual when one of the obligations that you have in a collectively bargained environment is to treat the similarly situated individuals the same. This task includes examining the existing disciplinary standards and prior disciplinary outcomes, as well as considering any mitigating or aggravating factors, all with the goal of reaching a fair and consistent disciplinary determination. As the disciplinary officer, I've been given broad authority to determine the appropriate level of discipline subject to appeal by any party to the commissioner, right? And therein lies the rub. This is what it's all about. Because if we go and we look at Article 46, I didn't read the end of this sentence, but it says the disciplinary officer's disciplinary determination will be final and binding subject only to the right of either party to appeal to the commissioner. The commissioner or his designee will then issue a written decision that will constitute full, final, and complete disposition of the dispute and will be binding upon the players, clubs, and the parties to the agreement. This is where the tilted field comes into full focus, right? Because you've put together this process. We just talked about the issues with definitions. We talked about how it certainly feels like this disciplinary officer is bound by whatever the NFL tells her it meant in anything that they wrote on this particular subject, which means they're always going to win in any event on the proof, the burden concept. And so you're not really going to get out of anything that way. And then if she decides on discipline that is otherwise not liked by the commissioner, the commissioner can appeal the decision to himself, which is the same situation that everybody was in before all of this, which makes this all smoke and mirrors, all a water sandwich. And honestly, leads me to believe that the NFLPA might be the weakest player association in any modern sport because this is the kind of thing that that player association really should be concerned with and worried about and they look like they got taken for a ride right here so let's get back to what she winds up deciding the nfl has recommended that mr watson be suspended for at least the entire 2022 nfl regular and postseason and not be permitted to return until he satisfies any conditions imposed for reinstatement According to the NFL, if this recommended sentence is unprecedented, as characterized by Mr. Watson and the Players Association, that is because his conduct is unprecedented. The NFL's reasoning is reflected in the following testimony of of one of its investigators. Even with just the four women, I think we haven't had someone who over the course of a year plus time committed SA against four different people, and he uses again, invokes the league in some ways of doing so. That in and of itself is unprecedented. The NFL responded by revising its policy to include a presumptive six-game suspension without pay for certain first-time violent offenders after there was an outcry with respect to Ray Rice, who they only gave a two-game suspension for uh, violently attacking, I believe it was his wife at the time. And here the judge or the arbitrator is establishing that the NFL has a pattern of its own, and that is to impose discipline and then respond after the fact based on public outcry that that discipline wasn't enough and change the way it operates. So after they give that two games to Ray Rice, they change their first-time violent offenders policy to have a six-game concept, including SA involving physical force. By revising its policy, the NFL gave fair notice to its players and to the public of the probable consequences of certain violent conduct. A demonstrative exhibit used during the hearing indicates that since the revisions to the policy from 2015 till now, by far the most commonly imposed discipline for domestic or gendered violence and SA is a six-game suspension. 
Only two players have been suspended for eight games, one for multiple incidents of domestic violence and the second for assault of multiple victims. A single player has been suspended for 10 games for multiple incidents of domestic violence for which the player pled guilty to battery. It is undisputed that Mr. Watson's conduct does not fall into the category of violent conduct that would require the minimum six-game suspension. Here comes the force concept into play, and this arbitrator got a lot of crap from various outlets for saying, how could this not be force? When, at least as described in the investigator's report in this document, force doesn't appear to be an issue. It likewise is undisputed that prior cases involving nonviolent SA have resulted in discipline far less severe than what the NFL proposes here, with the most severe penalty being a three-game suspension for a player who had been previously warned about his conduct. I am bound by standards of fairness and consistency of treatment among players similarly situated. The NFL argues that consistency is not possible because there are no similarly situated players. But by ignoring past decisions because none involve quote-unquote similar conduct, however, the NFL is not just equating violent conduct with nonviolent conduct, but has elevated the importance of the latter without any substantial evidence to support its position. While it may be entirely appropriate to more severely discipline players for nonviolent sexual conduct, I do not believe it is appropriate to do so without notice of the extraordinary change this position portends for the NFL and its players. You can't do this stuff after the fact. Similarly, the concepts of unfairness and selectivity demand notice in this case. Although I have found Mr. Watson to have violated the policy, I have done so using the NFL's post hoc definitions of the prohibited conduct at issue. You can tell there's a certain amount of discomfort with this. Defining prohibited conduct plays a critical role in the rule of law, enabling people to predict the consequences of their behavior. It is inherently unfair to identify conduct as prohibited only after the conduct has been committed, just as it is inherently unjust to change the penalties for such conduct after the fact. As I've noted above, the NFL is a private organization and can operate as it deems fit, but the post hoc determination of what constitutes the prohibited conduct here cannot genuinely satisfy the fairness prong of the standard of review or justify the imposition of the unprecedented sanction requested by the NFL. Now, this is an interesting paragraph in and of itself, because when you start talking about the fact that post hoc determinations can't justify fairness at all, it sounds like this arbitrator, this disciplinary officer might go out there and say, yes, I found that these things were proven based on your definitions, but I'm not going to impose anything. And that's not what happens. Instead, she takes a middle road because obviously she looks at this as predatory conduct, egregious conduct. She'll use that phraseology later. But it is a fact that their policy doesn't cover this exactly and that the NFL is playing fast and loose with what they agreed to with the NFLPA. With respect to what the appropriate discipline should be, I note that there are aggravating factors applicable to Mr. Watson, that is, his lack of expressed remorse and his tardy notice to the NFL of the first filed lawsuit. As to mitigating factors, he is a first-time offender and had an excellent reputation in his community prior to these events. He cooperated in the investigation, has paid restitution. Although Mr. Watson did not play during the 2021 season because of all this, the commissioner declined to put him on administrative leave under which any games missed would be credited against his suspension later imposed. This is important because they have a system where the commissioner can say, we're going to look at this, we're going to put you on leave, and to the extent after the fact we find that there was an issue, you will get credit for not having played games in the NFL where stats matter to get your money, to get your uh, name, image, and likeness rights, to make branding, et cetera, et cetera. You're not going to play, but this will be credited against you, time served, as it were. And instead, what the NFL and the Texans, to some extent, decided to do last season was to put him in limbo. So the NFL warned uh, everyone that this was an issue, and then the Texans held him out. 
Now, he did make money for that, which is an important distinction. But here, this particular disciplinary officer is pointing out that he should have gotten some amount of time served. Like, putting him in limbo was fundamentally unfair for the circumstance anyway, and so that's a mitigating factor to what I'm going to impose here. The NFL may be a forward-facing organization, but it is not necessarily a forward-looking one. Just as the NFL responded to violent conduct after a public outcry, so it seems the NFL is responding to yet another public outcry about Mr. Watson's conduct. At least in the former situation, the policy was changed and applied proactively. Here, the NFL is attempting to impose a more dramatic shift in its culture without the benefit of fair notice to and consistency of consequence for those in the NFL subject to the policy. Looking at the record when compared to the relevant precedent and looking forward to how this disciplinary determination might be used in the future, I find the most appropriate landing place to be as follows. Mr. Watson is hereby suspended for six regular season games without pay. Although this is the most significant punishment ever imposed on an NFL player for allegations of nonviolent sexual conduct, Mr. Watson's pattern of conduct is more egregious than any before reviewed by the NFL. Now, what's interesting here is this particular phrase gets pulled into various places, and this is a problem for the arbitrator uh, because it is implied that this is more egregious than anything the NFL has ever reviewed on any level, which is not the case, right? They have beatings. They have all sorts of issues uh, with their players. That's the nature of NFL sport, unfortunately. Uh, But this is, by context, designed to apply specifically to nonviolent sexual conduct, Uh, which in and of itself is another area where this particular arbitrator is getting pilloried. Recognizing that the only discipline mentioned in the CBA is a fine or suspension, I nevertheless believe it appropriate for Mr. Watson to limit his massage therapy to club-directed sessions and club-approved massage therapists for the duration of his career and so impose this mandate as a condition to his reinstatement. Now, this is wild. This is actually showing that this particular individual thinks that this is bad behavior, no doubt in any question, and so has imposed what amounts to an indefinite suspension from using private service providers outside the course of his actual football business with the Texans. Finally, Mr. Watson is to have no adverse involvement with law enforcement and must not commit any additional violations of the policy, which in and of itself is a problem, as we've just shown, because the NFL can just declare that you violated the policy and seemingly will get away with it based on the premise that they can change the definitions at their whim. So this middle one is the biggest to me with a with a signpost that this is a thing that matters to this particular uh, judge, but that she also is upset with the NFL for trying to play games with what these definitions are and, and being unfair to what the players are looking at and what the NFLPA uh, is doing in its particular neck of the woods. Now that's dated August 1st, just a couple of days ago. That goes into play and I say, hmm, I wonder if the NFL will appeal because politically... What they negotiated here was something that looked like it protected the NFLPA. You've gone through this process. You've used an independent arbitration source. She has gone through this process. She has determined that the NFL is right on things, at least as the NFL defines it, but that this should be a six-game suspension. And the NFL then has to decide if it appeals, well, it's going to be patently obvious that this is all a sham anyway right? That the commissioner never gave up any powers. And it's always up to whatever the commissioner wants to do. And here in the middle, you're just wasting everybody's time because the previous CBA just allowed you to decide on whatever. We'd appeal it to you. You'd reject it. And we go about our business. Here, you've got at least the patina, the concept that there is a certain amount of independent fairness here. But once you get down to, hey, it's binding until someone wants to appeal it to the commissioner, what you're really looking at is a lawsuit 
in which the losing party can appeal it to themselves and say, you know what? I think that decision was wrong, which is in fact what you saw just yesterday. NFL is appealing to Sean Watson's six-game suspension. And if you look at the news here, it looks like they are going to look for that indefinite suspension that they found to be the right penalty when they decided it initially for themselves. So all that really happened is that they wasted everybody's time and that Roger Goodell once again asserted his authority in toto across the league and the NFLPA looks all the worse for wear. Not only that, but the arbitrator here, the disciplinary officer, looks the worst for wear. She puts out a decision that at bare minimum follows along, however you want to read this, with what the NFL has done and how the NFL has, if you want to read it from this perspective, failed the women that are otherwise at the other end of these cases for years and years and years. But that demands a certain amount of fairness to the policies that the NFL has otherwise imposed. And she gets pilloried for following along with what the NFL does. The NFL swoops in and designs itself to look like a hero while simultaneously effectively telling these arbitrators, the future disciplinary officers of the world, to get in line or otherwise you're going to find yourself in that position. So when I say they expose themselves by the way this contract is written, by appealing it in this fashion, I mean it. There is no protection for the NFLPA in section 46 of the CBA, and that should be known. Now, To their credit, folks were talking about this when it happened, right? Understanding NFL's new process. You've got folks at like pro football talk here pointing out that this all goes back to Roger Goodell. So no matter what, if the disciplinary officer disagrees, imposes any discipline at all, the commissioner can rip up the decision and replace it with his own. And there will be no recourse. Now, of course, you can always take these things to a federal court and have a discussion about the CDA and the NFL and everything else. But that's a very, very hard case to win because sophisticated parties agreed on this, Article 46. And one does wonder whether the next time these parties sit across the table from each other, the NFLPA might do a better job of saying, you know what, we actually do need some fairness here, or whether they'll just be stuck accepting Roger Goodell as their king for all time to come. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoy conversations about pop culture, like sports, technology, video games, and more, please consider supporting the channel. We cannot do it without support from viewers and listeners like you. We've got a Utreon that you can support us at that gets the most money over to us, or Patreon, which is obviously the bigger, more familiar platform. We also have YouTube memberships, other ways to support, merch stores, all the rest. But if none of that appeals to you, just subscribe, tell your friends, upvotes, downvotes, engagement comments, all the fun stuff that YouTube provides, every little bit helps. And if you did watch this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.